Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon. You're listening to WORD 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. And today we're talking with Alex Ames. Two weeks ago, voters in Georgia went back to the polls for a runoff election with less than 100 votes incumbent. Senator Ralph Warnock beat his challenger, Herschel Walker, for the U.S. Senate seat. The youth vote in Georgia skyrocketed during the I'm sorry, less than a thousand votes, less than a hundred thousand votes. I'm sorry. Um, the youth vote in Georgia skyrocketed during the 2022 election season. Joining us to talk about the runoff election and organizing the young vote is Alex Ames. Alex, how are you doing today? Great. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for all the, the work that you're doing to, to turn out the vote. Uh, I think... You know, historically, young people have not shown up for for the midterms, for certain local elections, for um, the, the spring elections, for primaries, for those sorts of things. You you worked incredibly hard to change that for this runoff um, and to make sure that young people knew how to, you know, show up and, and vote in in their in their own interests. What did you do to to do this so effectively? Oh, my goodness, so much. Um, So everyone in the nation is aware that we have runoffs because this is not the first time everyone's attention has been on the Georgia Senate runoffs. Uh, 2020 was the first year I was able to vote. And so I went through the process of voting in the primary in May, voting in the general election in November, and then coming back for a runoff at that time on January 6th. But since that year and this time around, this election, we had Republican state politicians come back and rewrite election laws specifically to make this runoff much more condensed and frankly, much more suppressed. So going into this runoff, uh, we looked around, oh my goodness, there's gonna be a lot of difficulty to get to the polls. And we had only 28 days between the general election on November 6th, oh my gosh, November 8th, November 8th, there we go, and the runoff on December 6th, uh, which of course for me as a student coincides with the same time as college final exams, going home for the holidays. We get a couple days off for Thanksgiving if you go to college in Georgia. Um, So it's figuring out all of those different logistics and talking to all of my friends at schools and outside of schools across the state, there were a few issues. One, would people even know there was an election happening? Would folks know there was a runoff? Two, voting builds habits. So it's really good that people learn to vote every year, every two years, every four years. Um, But what if we have to unlearn a habit? What if they've learned that runoffs happen in January and that's not true anymore? We gotta get them to vote really, really soon after they already just cast a ballot. Um, There was a TikTok going around about what it's like to live in Georgia is basically going to vote every three days. Um, (laughs) And that felt very, that felt very accurate. So we spent all of our time in those 28 days working with campuses, county boards of elections, and college communities to ensure that you would have early voting access on your college campus on site. It's really hard for counties to work on such a short timeline, and they were very eager to say, eh, we'll just nix those college campus locations. But as a student who had four final exams on election day, I needed to be able to vote early, and so did my siblings, so did all of my classmates, and so we made it happen. That was a really big victory. Then we had to push for Saturday and Sunday voting. You know, in this tide of an election, we only have one week of early voting. We wanted to make sure that we concluded hours outside of the workday and days outside of the work week. Um, And then finally, going to talk to voters. Young voters do lean much more heavily towards Democratic candidates and progressive values than older voters. Um, So we do have that advantage when it comes to folks being motivated and knowing which candidate they may prefer. 
But the barrier we still face is knowing how to cast a ballot. Will my college ID work? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. When can I go vote? Where can I go vote? Who's on the ballot? How long do I have? What happens if I'm in line in one of those three-hour lines that we had, and then the polls close? What do I do? So we spent all of that time organizing hundreds of students to knock on doors, canvas their peers, walk up to their classmates in the lunchroom, in the dining hall, and say, hey, there's an election. Let's get out there and cast one more ballot this year, we promise. Um, and it all worked out. You know, 28 days later, we had another election. We had a very resounding margin of victory for Senator Raphael Warnock. Um, and we're really proud of the work we put in from those canvases to that ballot access work. Um, it seemed to all pay off. When you're talking about kind of this race, it was a, a really, you know, it was a really interesting race. The entire nation was was tuned in. We're here in Wisconsin talking about, you know, the, the Georgia race. And I think in part because the the organizing that has gone into voting, Wisconsin is a state that um, experienced, uh, has experienced, you know, some pretty intense d- efforts to suppress the vote. Um, and Georgia seems kind of to have, you know, voter suppression on steroids. Um, and you all seem to have this very sophisticated way of combating that. Um, I, I think you're not supposed to be able to to win um, an, uh, an election or this is supposed to, you know, devastate uh, Democrats and the Democratic ability to, to be successful in a state like Georgia. Um, how are you all adapting to to voter suppression? You hit the nail on the head. Uh, this election is built for black and brown and young and working voters to not have access to the polls. My parents are public school teachers and they have to go to school every day. And even though they vote every single election, they're very engaged. You know, they get the evening and the Sunday papers. They read everything. They know what's going on. They know who they want to vote for they were still really confused about how to get to the polls because they'd drive up past their early vote site on the way to work and they'd see a two-hour line. Um, And these are folks who live in a place where typically they do have access to the polls, where typically the lines aren't as long. Um, I live up in North Fulton County, uh, which is the same county Atlanta's located in. And we know these laws were revised because Republicans saw a state that they have claimed for the past two decades through gerrymandered maps and through voter suppression. And they saw voters choose a different candidate and they believed that voters should not get to choose that again. And it really was shocking to see by the end of this, the Republican Secretary of State's office calling for the runoff process, which has been overturned in most states by now and was written in the 1960s in Georgia to suppress black voters. To see Republicans even calling for that runoff to be um, abolished, to be replaced, because it is a system that hinders so many people's abilities to get to the polls. And the way that that is overcome is organizing, grassroots organizing in Georgia led predominantly by Black women-led organizations and Black organizing efforts like New Georgia Project and Black Voters Matter in particular, but also other constituencies, including groups like Georgia Muslim Voter Project or Asian American Advocacy Fund, who make sure voters who may have language barriers or some other difficulties getting to the polls, you know, a hyphen in their name that means their vote is more likely to be suppressed if they cast an absentee ballot, making sure they still can exercise that constitutional right. But what made organizing so difficult and and many times frustrating in 2022 was that in 2020, Georgia shocked the nation. Years of hard, hard work and expensive organizing and fundraising worked out. We proved that this is how you win elections. You make sure every voter can get to the polls, and that takes money and time. It takes knocking on millions of doors, 11 million doors knocked in 2020 during that runoff. And in 2022, we saw the same donors and the same giant national groups that looked at 2020 and then looked at the insurrection and said, we need to repeat what we did in Georgia because that insurrection was terrifying and because democracy is under attack. And then they said, you know, Georgia Republicans are democracy defenders. Let's put them on the front page of a magazine. Let's say that they are the ones standing between us and another worse insurrection when that's absolutely not the case. And then even worse, 
we saw an unwillingness to invest in candidates like Stacey Abrams, who is a black woman running for office against that voter suppression administration under our governor, um, which made this work even more difficult. We mm. need that funding and investment in grassroots organizing to win. We've proven that is true time and time again in states even beyond Georgia. And looking to this runoff, we can see we were proven correct again. This runoff was won by groups who put it all on the line to sacrifice their rest and their holiday vacations um, so they could knock on every single door, millions and millions and millions of doors across Georgia, speaking all sorts of languages to get voters out there. And it's only despite those obstacles that we won. The one anecdote I will tell is that I go to school at a college, um, Georgia Tech in Atlanta, that serves about 30,000 young people and young voters. And after we had successfully won early voting on campus sites at Morehouse College, uh, serving uh, HBCU colleges in Atlanta, Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta, as well as my college and the college down the street, Georgia State, which graduates more black students than any college in the country. We checked the Secretary of State's website, the state government's website, and they reported that information incorrectly. I had voters calling me saying, hey, I showed up to that polling site that we won for our campus and it's closed. I thought we were supposed to vote here. I thought we won. But the Secretary of State's office, the government website is telling me I can go vote here. And we said, what? That's wrong. We won count early voting on campus Monday through Wednesday at those schools, not on the weekends. It's not supposed to be open on the weekends. And this is really, really confusing for voters who don't have that much time to spend jumping from polling place to polling place because the government can't get their information right. So yet again, organizers had to demand those early voting sites and win them. Organizers had to staff those early voting sites. Organizers had to make sure that when voters ended up in the wrong place, they ended up getting that information corrected. And organizers like me had to call the governor's office and the secretary of state's office on a Saturday and say, hey, you got voters showing up to a location that is not a polling location today, and your website is incorrect, and that needs to be corrected immediately. So when we talk about voter suppression, it's not just like in the aggregate and in the abstract that feeling your vote won't count. It's also the very tangible experience of being told you can vote and then showing up and being turned away and mm. rejected. So glad we were there to catch that, um, but voter suppression isn't going anywhere anyone anytime soon. Oh, I think so many of us are so grateful you were there to catch that. And Alex, I think if you're just joining us, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. Alex Ames is a Georgia Tech student who is studying social justice, public policy, and law. They are the co-founder and organizing director of jo Georgia Youth Justice Coalition. The coalition spans 28 counties, thousands of students, and is responsible for countless victories. Alex and her peers have fought against racial gerrymandering attacks on school boards. They have worked to secure the best budget for Georgia public schools in two decades. And they successfully stopped Georgia's Don't Say Gay Bill. Recently, Alex and the team at Georgia Youth Justice Coalition organized the Gen Z vote during Georgia's recent runoff election. You sound so busy and and so powerful. And I guess I, I want to ask, you know, there there is a you you mentioned kind of the, the desire to suppress the the vote of, of people of color, of young people, of, of disabled folks, of folks living in poverty. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the racial dynamic, because I think one of the things that that made this race interesting and complicated to talk about um, is it was hard to say one side was racist in terms of of these two candidates, in terms of of Raphael Warnock and and Herschel Walker, because they are both black men. Um, so how did racism show up in this race? I will say, I. I became critical of how people talked about Herschel Walker's intelligence in the same way I became critical of how people talked about Sarah Palin's intelligence. Um, I, although I think you have to be critical of candidates, I think that there were ways in which um, 
racism was was leveraged to make Herschel Walker into a caricature of himself. I I think that uh, there's folks who would say he played into that. Um, I think sexism was 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 a factor in how we started to describe um, Sarah Palin's intellectual ability. How do you think racism impacted these these two candidates in this race and the way Georgia as a state um, talked about who was going to be their senator? So working for a group that does describe our work as at the intersection of multiracial democracy and public education. So these attacks on our public schools, public schools where we know things like racist censorship um, have existed long before uh, politicians decided to make it a new topic of conversation in the past two years. We've been going to schools that are named after Confederate generals. We've been going to school down the street from Confederate monuments. And when we look around in a city like Atlanta, which has black leadership, has had black leadership, and still tops the chart in terms of racial inequality and inequality overall in the entire nation, we know that there is no answer as simple as representation because representation is not simply an identity factor. It is who will fight for us and who will fight for all of us. So when my friends, you know, young black and brown women who were leading our organizing efforts, who were reaching tens of thousands of young voters on their canvas, on their canvassing um, efforts, they would see an ad on TV of Herschel Walker talking to white voters and saying, don't worry, I know you vote for Donald Trump, but you're not racist, don't worry, I'll tell you you're not racist. And that was really concerning for them to see, you know, someone going out to the very same people who have sent our organization death threats, who have told us we don't have the right to fully funded schools, that we deserve censored curriculum, that learning about simply the act or, or the fact that segregation happened and that systemic racism is real, uh, that that is radical and should be illegal in our schools, to have someone go out and say, oh, no, don't worry, that's not racist, you're fine, you can vote for me, and that will absolve you of that, um, that was very hurtful. So to us, when we go to our young voters, many, many of our young voters, um, particularly as the youngest electorate is the most diverse electorate in Georgia, very few of them are operating from this mindset that electing a person of one race or electing a person of one party is electing a hero, someone who's going to save everything for us. Voting is medicine, not magic. It can't do it all. What they're looking for is someone who's going to really deliver. Are you going to get elected saying you're going to give us stimulus checks and then back out? Are you going to get elected and say that you're going to fully fund our schools and then we're going to look back on two decades of wading through sewage with mold on the walls and classrooms and trailers in the parking lot? And most young people we talk to will say that. They say, politics feels divisive. I see all these poli politicians' ads. I see all these exposés, all these articles. And I want to see who is someone who, when I can't afford to buy a house, I can't afford to pay rent, I can't afford my college debt, is going to come to me and say, I'm going to fight for you. And our voters did not see Herschel Walker as that guy. He was not going to do that, and he would tell us to our faces. Um, that was really the truth of it. Thank you so much for speaking to that and to for for speaking to the the complexity of of that dynamic, right? When you have two black candidates and yet one is really affiliated um, with a variety of white supremacist movements, um, and and you know is is pretty enthusi enthusiastically promoting them uh, uh, along the campaign trail. Um, I recently saw you speak and you uh, a refrain that you used over and over again is we look to our left and we look to our right um, and and you know we brought people together to work in the interests of public schools you you talked about you know getting your your legislature getting your 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 state government to invest in public education um, by really, you know, connecting with the heart of public education as a nonpartisan issue. Um, I think Wisconsin's got a lot to learn from you in terms of in terms of that. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you did that and what that organizing effort looked like, and what what does it mean to for Georgia to have the the largest budget for public education it's had in the last twenty years? 
Absolutely. Uh, so our vision of organizing as a group of students who come out of public schools, which serve about 92% of students in Georgia. Um, I'm a child of two public school teachers, spent my whole life in public schools, and many of our experiences with things like uh, race and class um, and um, injustice as young people first occur as we're going through this school system, when we see people not get what they need, um, and when we see opportunities get denied on the basis of what you're born with, um, that you may be born into a zip code where your school is less funded, unless you don't get to go to college. Um, and when we organize, understanding that election day is one day of the year, and there are 364 other days where these issues still persist, it opens up this whole world of things that we could be doing to organize for the world we deserve. Um, whether that is protest, letters to your elected officials, running candidates, um, organizing pressure campaigns, going to the school board. And we do all of the things because our schools do matter to us. When we talk about the place where young people should learn to resolve conflict, to work with people who look different than them, who worship a different God than them, and learn to find a place where they belong and they are safe, regardless of whether they are born um, and assigned a gender that is not their identity, that they should still be able to be safe and belong um, and thrive. So when we looked at this public school budget, you know, we had this very common experience of going to schools and then having no access to counselors, having high suicide rates in our schools, um, when kids were in crisis, they would be met with police instead of with support systems. And kids being pushed out as well, that if you started to fail, you were driven to drop out of the school system instead of to stay in and get what you needed. So going to this uh, legislature this spring and then going back to voters this fall to say, all right, it's time to vote for who's going to get us the schools we deserve. We find that this should be an overarching issue that legislators have not spent time in the classroom as they need to. And when we bring students to the Capitol, oftentimes they didn't want to hear us. They would start canceling public comment. Students would walk in the room with something to say about our schools and what we need. And they'd say, no, we'll decide what your schools need. We'll decide that for you. Which at first was very demoralizing, but then we realized they wouldn't try to shut us down unless we were powerful, unless they knew it was really dangerous for their status quo for people to finally feel their experiences were validated. If you go to school or send your child to a public school, you will often feel that the challenges in that school are individualized, that they are my challenges. But what if you got to take a step back and realize, oh, every school is having these problems. Everywhere has a teacher shortage. Every child's struggling to access mental health support. All of these schools, it's almost like it's systemic or something. So we go to the legislature and we say, you are the ones who determine what the systems look like. You wrote this formula in the 1980s because the court told you your current funding system wasn't going to cut it. It was way too racist. So you wrote like a slightly less racist formula for funding our schools that still leaves a lot of students behind, particularly black students, disabled students, low-income students, and students who are learning English. And when we look around, those inequalities get wider and wider and wider as we go on. So if we can go to that capital and say, all right, you want to talk about solving problems in our schools, let's talk about the real problems. Let's talk about Mira, who waited four months to see a counselor. Let's talk about Aduni, who goes to school in a place where there's 40 kids in a class because there's not enough classrooms or teachers. Let's talk about Martin, who goes to school with algebra in a trailer with no air conditioning because they can't afford to build a new wing of the building for all the students. These are very common experiences. And finally, as we got to the end of this legislative session and we were securing advances to the budget, we started to realize we actually are powerful. You know, they're scared of us for a reason, because we're winning and because these things are popular. Because at the root of all of this is people's fear that their child won't have the opportunities they need to succeed. But the world's a scary place and we're not all gonna get what we need. But what if we realized what stood between us and the future we deserve is not our neighbors, not the folks that we feel like we're in competition with, but these systems that have been built to hold all of us back and some of us more than others. What if the person who stands in the way of your child getting into college and getting the opportunities that they deserve was not 
an immigrant student who's in their class or a trans kid who's playing on their soccer team, but was instead the legislator who decided, eh, that kid doesn't really deserve good education. Eh, that's too expensive. That's not really worth it to me. I feel like a lot of voters would agree that it is very much worthwhile to fund a quality public education that deserves every child. So finally, as we close this year, we really got to take a step back and say, this year started with politicians attacking our schools, attacking honest history, attacking black youth and black educators, attacking our trans classmates and LGBTQ folks' humanity, um, and decimating our public education resources and developing all of that money into private discriminatory segregatory, segregatory schools. And we close the year winning. We close the year with young voters showing up like never before, delivering a 51st senator. We close the year defeating every book ban in the state of Georgia with parents and students organizing together. We close the year with the best budget that I have ever seen in my lifetime for the schools that my teacher, my parents still teach at and my younger siblings still get to attend. And we close the year with young people understanding that we are powerful, that like these systems were meant to be torn down and replaced. They're not meant to stand there forever. Um, and no one's going to come out and change those systems unless we do. So I know I have these very long-winded answers, um, but I am just truly That's so such proud. such a beautiful answer. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, people's was... like, recognition of their own power to actually win these things. Because um, elections are just one day of the year. Like We got all these other days, and we can win every other day as well. Oh, do you do you wake up in the morning and just kind of feel <laughs> like immensely powerful and capable of of changing the world because of what you've been able to accomplish <laughs> thus far in Georgia? And I think a lot of people would look at the work that you've done and think like, oh, my gosh, you must just be exhausted. I mean, this is some really challenging, gut wrenching boots on the ground work um, that that you are, you know, giving your your every free moment to when you're not, you know, trying to make it through college. <laughs> um, so so yeah, do you, do you feel kind of the exhaustion and pressure of the work? Do you feel unstoppable and invincible? Do you go back and forth? What is it? What is it like to have done this work, have have achieved what you all have achieved and to know that you have a long road ahead of you? Well, I mean, one thing that is certainly exhausting about it sometimes is that there is no one final finish line. You know, we can win this budget that I'm very proud that we got, uh, but we still have a long ways to go. I would appreciate a lot more millions of dollars towards our public schools. It's our taxpayer money. I would prefer it to go to our schools than tax cuts for the rich. Um, and we've got quite a long ways down the road to get to that point. Um, but... When I think about it, this is the best way I could imagine spending my life, is working with other people um, from all different backgrounds uh, to work for the future we deserve. I think as a young person, it's very easy to fall into that trap of, oh my gosh, like our future is going to be really scary. Um, I don't want to think about a future of mass death that I can't prevent because climate change is inevitable, or a future where our schools get segregated into one category of schools that look like prisons and the other category of schools that no one can access except the rich. I want to think about the future that we deserve and every day that we get to move closer to that um, I think gives me a reason to wake up the next day and continue this work. And I guess the second reason I would say it feels often very natural to stay in this work um, is that in Georgia we have a very robust ecosystem of people who take care of each other in here. I have a lot of mentors who are a decade or more older than me who have been doing this and they are still very young, you know, a decade older than me is still someone in their 20s. And to me, I look at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been organizing for like four years and it feels like forever. How do you do this forever? And then I look at them and I know it's possible. I know like, oh, what if I did this for 15 years? What if I did this for 20? What if I did it for like a lifetime? I can't imagine a better way I would want to spend my time and I can't imagine better people to spend it with mm. people who do care deeply about each other about like what if we didn't have to accept that another generation of students have to go to egregiously underfunded over criminalized schools or what if we didn't have to accept that like the next time a hurricane hits South Georgia we're just fundamentally unprepared and lives will be lost um, it's a very beautiful thing to win 
it makes you feel very powerful and it makes it feel all the better when you know it was a movement. It's not just me. I could go and take a nap right now and we would keep winning because it's not one person. It's all of us, um, ordinary people. Like that's, that's what democracy means after all, like all of the people getting what they need and deserve, um, all taking collective action together and taking care of each other to keep it sustainable in the process. I think so many of us listening to this conversation are probably deeply grateful for your willingness to do this work. And yet listening to you describe kind of a lifetime of fighting voter suppression, um, there's a part of me that really hopes you don't have to. Um, And so I, I wonder, you know, is there... There, there is the ability to organize, there is the ability to be really agile in the face of voter suppression, but is there a little part of you that thinks kind of indignantly, I shouldn't have to do this. We shouldn't, the, the, the rules shouldn't keep changing. They shouldn't keep disadvantaging the same people, um, you know, and, and what do you, what do you do to, I guess, make sure that the, the young people who organize, you know, when you're a decade older, aren't doing the same kind of organizing you had to do? Oh, that's that's the question. If we had the answer for that, we'd be winning all the time. <laughs> but certainly part of it is allowing myself to feel like deeply like heartbroken at times from that because I would rather feel that feeling um, than lie to myself and pretend that it's not deep. I think the the hardest moment of my year this year was a very insane year for organizing, um, especially as someone who does a lot of work around um, trans young people's rights around elections in Georgia. Like it felt like the universe was collapsing in on us um, and all eyes were on Georgia and all eyes were on us. But the final day of this legislative session this past year, we had Um, me inside the Georgia Gold Dome with my team of other young people. And it was about 8 p.m. when our governor went on live TV and said his priority for the rest of the night was targeting transgender youth in Georgia schools. And the blood drained from my face. I was just shocked. Like, we had, it's me versus the Georgia governor. Like, how do you beat that? Um, And we basically had to spend the next about five hours until 1 a.m., running around the building, I wore terrible shoes that day, I should have worn more runnable shoes, um, confronting elected officials, including my own elected official, my own state senator, a conservative elected legislator, saying, hey, you have a bill, and someone else has a bill they're trying to put onto your bill, and their bill will threaten the lives of trans children who are real, and they exist and they live in your district. I know them, they're my friends, they're very much loved, and I would really appreciate it if you made sure that in accordance with the laws that you guys wrote about your own processes, you didn't break the rules to attach this hateful bill to your own bill. And that was the hardest five hours of my year because it was conversation after conversation where sometimes the legislator would be like, yeah, you're right, we should probably not break the rules just to target some kids. Thanks for talking to me, constituents. Um, And then sometimes they would just talk right back at you in deeply dehumanizing ways. And right after that, you know, we walked out in the parking lot and we won in some ways and we lost in some. There was a bill that passed. It was far better um, than we had expected. It was better than any of our neighboring states. And it did not ultimately um, ban trans people from participating in sports in Georgia or um, limit their health care or anything like that. Uh, But it didn't feel like a victory. We stood out in the parking lot and I stood with parents of trans kids from Georgia and we just cried. And it was a very dystopian moment. We were surrounded by police cars like feeling like this devastating heartbreak of like, we could look back and count 37 times that these supposedly democratically elected officials broke the rules to target children, like the most vulnerable among us, people who cannot vote, who cannot you know, be emancipated, don't have their own protection. And these were the most powerful people I'd ever met um, who would stand in front of me and say, you know, sucks to suck, this is what we're going for. Um, that's when I decided to sign up for therapy. Uh, that was like the darkest moment. Um, and it took me months before I could tell that story without like breaking down. Um, but I did want to hold on to that because I wouldn't want to relive that day and not feel like how, how much that hurt. Because feeling how much that hurt 
is what made it meaningful that there were people who would feel that and fight um, and that we could win, that we could come back and we could protect every single trans child playing sports anywhere in Georgia, um, that we could turn around and they could spend $6 million in Georgia sending transphobic mailers to every black and Hispanic household in the state and they would still lose. And like, that felt good. That meant it was working, um, that like they could break all the rules we wanted, but we, they wanted, but we had the power um, and at the end of the day, like that is a very roundabout story and a very emotional story, but it brings me to that point of, yes, I have had to learn to live with that feeling of sometimes we're going to lose and it's going to hurt so badly. And if it didn't feel so badly when it hurt, this work wouldn't be meaningful. So I've got to be able to feel those feelings. Um, but still... I would like it to be known that if we left trans people to fight for themselves, there will never be enough trans people to win an election. Mm. If we left poor kids and all kids who literally cannot vote, who are under 18, uh, to fund their own schools, figure out how to get that happening, when they cannot cast a ballot, uh, we would never win that fight. Um, so we are building power day by day. And I feel very confident that the organizers that come a decade from me, the 20-year-olds in 10 years, um, who are, you know, today, like in middle school and elementary school, will be finding different fights. And they will have people like me and like the people who are a decade older than me who stand at their back and take care of them. The organizers who called me that night and said, I just saw what the governor said. What can I do to help you? Are you okay? What do you need? Um, that's what got me through the night. Um, so it was at some moments the darkest part of my organizing experience, but it was also the moment where I felt the most taken care of because I got to look around the room at all of these organizers who have defended abortion rights, who have defended black people's voting rights, who have defended housing justice in Georgia for years and years. And they all just looked at me and they said, we saw what the governor just said. What can we do to help? Let's go get them. Um, yeah. So that is what keeps me in it. The feelings are big. But uh, the community is really where it's at. And we take care of each other. Do you think a decade from now when young people show up at the Capitol, instead of talking to the, the, the conservative who represents you right now, they'll be talking to you as an elected official? Do you think like the, the difference in part of the movement that you're building um, is who will be in office and, you know, how how soon your generation of young folks will be will be ready to to not just you know steer the car or or you know you know hand over the map but really take the wheel yes and i feel like it's already happening so in georgia we do have deeply gerrymandered state legislature maps uh which is very frustrating but i grew same. up my entire life that's the same in wisconsin <laughs> so oh, things yeah, we have yeah, in common but the district I grew up in, in Gwinnett County, Georgia, which is a 1 million residents live there. Um, the school district is about 80% black and brown students. It's a very diverse community um, from folks from all over the world. It's really a wonderful place to be. Um, but my district was represented by my least favorite representative. I won't name her, um, but I don't like her. Mm. And I'd never been represented by a Democrat, let alone someone who was just simply accountable to people instead of corporate lobbyists. Um, and this year, a woman by the name of Rua Roman, who is a Palestinian American, a Muslim American young woman, um, she got elected to the district I lived in. And I texted her and I said, Rua, I know that like you're on national TV, like you're freaking famous now. This is so amazing. But I want you to know, like as a personal level, I used to live in a district with someone who would, you know, decide how much money our schools get and how much money my parents get paid. Like I used to live in a place where our elected official would block people on Facebook um, because they said that women should have rights. And now I'm represented by someone who like picks up the phone when I call and fights for all of us. And it's a wonderful thing. And there's 181 seats in Georgia and there are many more than you would think fill, filled with people like Rua who really are fighting for us. So I can feel it already happening. Um, and I can feel also that those politicians that I'm not a fan of, which some of whom will still be around in a decade, they're starting to listen more. They're starting to look and be like, oh, dang, they're powerful. They can unelect me if they want. Like, they can mobilize hundreds of thousands of young voters, 200,000 young voters uh, to go to the polls. 
And those voters are not going in their direction. I'll tell you that much. Um, so I'm feeling a little bit rejuvenated going into this year, looking those legislators in the eyes saying, last year you tried to do awful things, and we won anyways, and we're back, and we're not going anywhere, and we'll be here for years and years to come. I don't think I will ever run for office. I must say that, though. It's not in the cards for me. I don't want to spend a year having a fundraise for my own campaign. I can't do that. I don't want to talk to rich people. <laughs> I, I think you can do whatever you want to do. And I think we'd be very lucky to have the opportunity to vote for you, Alex. But I want to ask this because I think there's the conversation about organizing and getting people out to vote. And then there's the conversation about the quality of the candidates. And so one of one of the things that I think came up when you're talking about, you know, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker is would Raphael Warnock have won if Herschel Walker was, you know, not considered a, a pretty bad candidate? I mean, you have Dave Chappelle on SNL um, calling him, you know, un- unintelligent. There was a, a real you know, a real campaign against Herschel Walker that went beyond Georgia. Um and so, you know, do you worry that were the Republican Party to kind of reunite um, and start running the the kinds of candidates that are, you know, perceived more similarly to your governor, um, that that this 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 fight might be a lot harder to win and you might lose a lot more often? I think that is absolutely true. That the reason you see a difference between. Brian Kemp's reelection and uh, Herschel Walker's defeat is that Brian Kemp uh, chose to run as a moderate, which as someone living in Georgia, I know his positions are very radical. His positions on schools and rights for reproduction and everything like that are very radical. But he got to run as someone who is common sense. His form of authoritarianism is the form of authoritarianism those in the Deep South and particularly people of color across the United States have been experiencing since America was first established. Um, That's old school authoritarianism, as opposed to Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis authoritarianism, which is just a little bit more unhinged. Um, You know, Ron DeSantis doing all these things all the time. They're all getting overturned by the courts. He's not like actually implementing effective policy. He's just doing things to make headlines because that's a strong man authoritarian leader. Um, They want to be seen as like crazy and terrifying. You know, the Elon Musk of politics. Um, and incompetent at the same time. So while like, I know there is a real difference between an incompetent evil leader and a merely evil leader, um, at the same time, I feel like if a party can, if the Republican Party can regain discipline and start to run less incompetent, but still very authoritarian, anti-worker, anti-black, anti-woman, anti-child politicians, um, We are in for a good bit of trouble, but candidate quality is not the end of the world. At the end of the world, like, there are still paths forward when no matter how smart or well-spoken or competent a politician is, if they're still running on the same platform, we can still win. You know, if they're still running on a platform of, I think you should pay your tax dollars to me, and I should hand them to my rich friend, my rich friend's segregated private school, and like tax cuts for their corporation instead of your school, your hospitals, um, and your veterans funds, then we still have that path to explaining to people, what if you just had a government that worked for you? So while I do think people are very much yearning in this moment for a less divisive politics, um, as much as they want that, we also want a second thing. We also want a politics that actually solves problems. Not just a politician who can say the right thing and sound more like a quote-unquote normal, sane politician instead of someone who's off the rails or considered incompetent or not well-spoken enough. We also want to elect someone who's actually going to do something about the real problems, not the made-up ones, not the let's, let's prosecute the White House or let's go after Hunter Biden. No, I think people actually want to see like economic problems solved and housing justice problems solved and college be affordable. Um, so yes, we are in trouble if we can find some more sane, but still evil politicians and we start seeing them on the ballot more, but I want to question and more suggest, I said, I, I guess suggest that perhaps American voters can dream bigger and better than just well-spoken evil politicians. 
if you know what I mean. I absolutely know what you mean. I want to use a, a little bit of time. I'm like, gosh, this hour is going really fast, Alex. And I just so appreciate everything you have to say and all of the work that you're doing. One of one of the things folks talked a lot about a lot after this this most recent midterm election was the role of abortion and young women and how young women felt, you know, particularly compelled after Roe v. Wade was overturned to to show up um, and, and vote for politicians who would stand up for reproductive freedom. Where where is Georgia when it comes to abortion? Can you get an abortion if you need to have one? Short answer, no. Um, abortion is banned in Georgia after six weeks, as it is in many of our neighboring states. And I'm friends with many folks involved in abortion care provision. Um, and also, I'm aware that if I were to need an abortion today, tomorrow, next month, um, I would have to find a way to get a road trip up to North Carolina. Um, which is That's a hike. a hike. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hike as someone who doesn't own a car. So, yeah, I do think when we talk to our voters, the biggest issues we talked about were gun violence in our schools happening every single week. It doesn't get reported on anymore because it's just considered normal um, in a state with some of the most egregious gun laws in the country. We talked about economic justice, about the ability to go to college and graduate debt-free. And then finally, we would talk about you know, the ability to have the right to marry who you love and have a family when you wish, if you wish. Um, it's very devastating to hear stories of people being denied the care they need, especially as hospitals around Georgia are shutting down because our governor refuses to expand Medicaid. But I really do believe that this generation knows that this is a right. This is our right. Um, it is an issue of safety, of equity, of dignity, of all of the things. Um, and we are on the path to building a movement where we can restore that right. And in the meantime, people better stay angry about it. This cannot be something considered normal. I I appreciate the the stay angry about it because I think, you know, I I think there's this tension between, you know, resistance and and revolution and electoral politics, right? Like should we be trying to shift something as important as our right to our own body through, you know, the electoral process or is this a, a time where you kind of go beyond beyond the government um and start looking at at new ways to support people? Um as an organizer, as somebody who's working politically, are, are there moments in which you say, hey, this is an, an area that's beyond the electoral process. It's beyond, you know, talking to uh, politicians. This is about, you know, kind of getting folks on a grassroots level to work together to make this change, whether it's legal or not. Yes and yes, hand in hand. Um, certainly some of the fights that we've been fighting recently around trans rights, you know, we are facing a law that tells us um, or rather advises our sports association to ban uh, young people from playing on sports teams that align with the gender they identify as. And, you know, every time that we talk to a trans athlete who says, you know, I'm still playing on this sports team. Everyone still wants me here. I'm still allowed to. My school hasn't stopped me. My school wants me here. You know, that's a lot of ordinary people deciding to defy recommendations, laws, however you choose to see it from the state government, saying, no, this is a, a minor who attends my school. This is a politician over there who lives like 50 miles away. Like they don't get to tell me what sport this child can and can't play. Um, so the way I see it, particularly when we practice defying political censorship laws and curriculum, practice defying bans on kids playing sports, uh, we are practicing the art of defying fascism. That as these bans increase, as the authoritarianism gets stricter and stricter, the rope around our neck gets tighter, we have to practice the abilities of ordinary people to question, to defy, um, to demand safety, to demand their rights and claim what is theirs, even when some government tells them they can't. So that means we're still going to be teaching that racism is real. This is 2022. We're not moving backwards in time. And no state law can tell us otherwise. Um, and when we see hundreds and hundreds of educators and thousands and thousands of students across Georgia taking on our curriculum and saying, no, nope, nope, that's that's not what we're going to follow. That's not the law. Um, you cannot legislate reality 
out of our history, um, that is a very inspiring thing to see because those go hand in hand. We got to unelect those people, but in the meantime, we can choose to defy them anyways. Mm, Thank you so much for for speaking to that. And I'm like, I'm so deeply inspired by the idea of ordinary people saying, no, this kid is on our team um, and we care about these young people and we're going to stand up for them. Um, I... I'm curious in these in these last couple minutes, you know, what what is next for you? What is coming up? What are, what is the the you know, I know you're taking a little like break right now that is so deserved and I want to honor and respect that space for you. But when you are done kind of taking this break, how do you all, you know, move into 2023? What are you, what's the what's the next, you know, priority in terms of youth organizing in Georgia? Absolutely. So if anyone wants to follow along, we're usually at Georgia Youth CO on social media, and that's where we um, often have our students updating on the work they do. And we work from the classroom to the Capitol. So we have kids working on educator-student solidarity, on fighting curriculum bans locally. And then when you zoom out a little, they're focused on going to the school board meeting every month and advancing equity priorities, getting police out of classrooms and replacing them with actual experts on mental health and safety for young people. And then you zoom out a little more and we're talking statewide. We're talking about summer political education programs we run every year, reaching hundreds and hundreds of students across the state and teaching them about the history of social movements that came before us, teaching them how to work with other people to change the world around them teaching them how to protest, how to do all of the things, um, and then finally building community in the process, particularly for black student leaders um, who are building black student unions in their high school, who are protesting, um, who are building just safe space for themselves as well as our LGBTQ youth um, in high schools and colleges across Georgia. So we're really proud of the movement we've built this year, um, but we're excited to spend the next year not having to work with an election deadline and just getting to build deeper community and deeper political education. Um, as we look to the future, there will be elections until after we die. Um, there have always been elections, uh, but we can do the work in the meantime to build a better world beyond the ballot box. So I am just so, so excited going into the new year for that opportunity um, to work with all of these wonderful people in Georgia and across the country. Alex, I can't, ju- I cannot thank you enough for joining us on WORT 89.9 FM. Um, thank you for, for making us fall in love with the future and giving us hope and, you know, saving, saving the country and fighting for, for young people in public education in Georgia.